Amen. Um, uh, Roy Jr., Roy Jr., if you know Roy Jr., you can go back there where Croc is going to be teaching y'all tonight. Um, man, uh, already I'm so encouraged. Um, what, what an awesome time of worship together and getting to read God's word and get to sing truths to him and about him. And uh, if, I, if you're new to the church, I'm, my name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. Usually I just play the guitar and scream. Um, but tonight um, we're going to go through, we're going to do an introduction and an overview of the book of Mark. Um, we're going to spend the next year going through this. And so what I want to do is I want to do some, good, some biographical introductory information so that we kind of have an idea of who wrote it, when they wrote it, and then also I'm going to go through kind of an overview looking, and the, to do this, I want to talk through the different titles that, that Mark uses as he talks about Jesus so that we can see kind of an overall theology of the book of Mark. And at the end of the day, the, he summarizes what he wants to say in the first verse. He says that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hey, that's that's his summary statement. And then he takes 16 chapters to, uh, to kind of work that out. Now, um, it, what's really fascinating is if you're new to studying the Bible, we have four Gospels in the, in the, in the New Testament. We have four different um, accounts of the life of Jesus. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered the synoptic Gospels. They're called synoptics because they kind of see through the same eye. Like they, ha they overlap on so many different, like 95% of the material in the synoptic Gospels is covered in more than one place. And now Mark is the shortest of those. And so even to take a, a step further back, um, we believe that Matthew was written by Matthew, one of the apostles. Mark, we'll talk about this tonight, we believe was written by a guy named John Mark, who was not one of the apostles, but he learned a whole bunch through Peter. He was a companion of Peter and a companion of Paul at different times. And so we're going to, we'll uh, we're going to talk through specifically why we think it is John Mark and why we think he was a companion of Peter. Luke was written by Luke, who was a companion who traveled around with Paul, and John was written by John the Apostle. Now, um, what, what, what I think is that Mark was probably the first to write his account, and we think it's somewhere between 55 and 65 A.D. Now, when, it, when, we, get to, when we get to specific dates, it's kind of confusing, but let's just say probably the first of the Gospels to be written. Now that doesn't mean, this is also confusing, that it was the first New Testament book to be written because some of the letters were written before the Gospels were. So in fact, most of Paul's writings happened before the Gospels were completed. If that's confusing, don't worry. Just think Mark is probably the first one written and we think that he got a lot of his information from Peter. Now, let's talk, what do we know about John Mark? Um, we know that John Mark, uh, there's a bunch of things we see, a bunch of places we see him come up in scripture. Now, I'll say this too, I'm gonna cover a lot of information because I do think, since we're gonna be spending the next year studying this book, we're gonna, I'm gonna go into maybe more detail than you thought you were gonna get tonight, um, but this, hopefully this will be something that you can look back on that will help you as we go through the book of Mark. And uh, Joseph is going to send out some notes also later this week on our email, so don't feel like you have to write everything down. Um, but let me talk about where we see John Mark. First, we see John, um, he, is a, he's a, he might be, and this is, we'll get to this, sometime next year. Um, he might be mentioned in Mark 14. At the end of Mark 14, there's a really weird story um, when, everybody, when everybody deserts Jesus, and Mark might be mentioned there. We do know that in Acts 12, talks about, um, talks about where his mom lived. So John Mark's mom apparently was a follower of Jesus who had a pretty big house, so we think uh, the, the early church was meeting in his mom's house. In fact, if you remember the story about when Peter gets kind of, uh, he gets miraculously released from jail and, he's kind of, and he walks around and you know, the, the doors of the jail are just open. The jailers are asleep and, nothing, and it's just really weird and he goes to a house where he knows people are meeting. That's John Mark's mom's house and that's where he knocks on the door and they come to the door and they think, oh, it's a vision of Peter and they run back and don't open the door. Um, but that's probably his mom's house which means he probably had a good deal of money because there was, this was a house big enough for everybody to meet in. We also see him show up with the Apostle Paul. So in Acts, later on in chapter 12, 
um, he is a companion um, with Paul and Barnabas on um, their missionary journey. Now, when he goes, he goes with them on their first journey, but then there, he goes with them to Antioch, and then when it comes to um, Perga in chapter 13, he abandons them. Uh, this is fascinating, um, because he abandons them to the point that when Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to leave out again on their second journey, Paul says, oh, I don't want John, John Mark coming with us. Isn't that fascinating? He's like, nope, not happening. So they split, because he said, he deserted us. Why am I gonna take him with us when he deserted us? And so it's really interesting is that God uses his lack of devotion or whatever, at least his perceived lack of devotion, the Apostle Paul, to split up their missionary trips. So now they just doubled the workforce. So Paul takes Silas with him. Barnabas is like, no, I'm gonna take him. I believe in him. And then they go their separate ways. And what's awesome is that we actually get to see them reconcile later on. We see that because in, uh, in, in Colossians 4, when Paul, who's writing Colossians, he mentions that Mark's with him, which is really cool. So we've got him back together with Paul. So there was some type of reconciliation that took place. And we see in the end of Colossians, that's where we find out that John, that John Mark was Barnabas' cousin, which makes sense why he wants to take him. It's just a little cousin. He's grow up, he grew up with them. And uh, so, he t- and, but he's with Paul. And then Philemon mentions that he's also, another time that he's with Paul. And then what the best, the, the, the most exciting one is in 2 Timothy 4. You know, 2 Timothy is like Paul's last letter. He's getting ready, you know, he knows that his end is, that's when he's talking about, I mean, I've already finished my race, I've run my course. And he's like, hey, send these things to me. And he mentions, really cool, he says, um, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now this is just really neat because we have this young man who served along with Paul, who Paul felt he's not devoted enough, but by the end of his life, he says, man, he's, they've reconciled together and they've got this really cool relationship, which is awesome, all right? Um, we, uh, First Peter also mentions that uh, Mark is one of his associates when he's in Rome. And so that's when we think that he wrote it. He, we feel like he probably wrote it when he was with Peter in Rome sometime at the end of the 50s. All right, and then uh, what's crazy is that we also have early church testimony that says that he died a martyr's death. So when, you're, when we're reading through this, realize that this young man who is recording this gospel so that we can know the life, the life ministry and work of Jesus, he ultimately gets martyred for the faith. In fact, tradition teaches that he was a, they had a rope that tied around his neck and they dragged him until he died, which is crazy. So let's be thinking through this. As we're going, as we're, as we're reading through this, we're reading somebody who had written, this, written down this gospel for us who ultimately died for the faith. And then, and, and we do think that probably, we prob- this is, he calls this the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is the gospel of Jesus Christ um, as recorded by Mark and probably through the eyes of Peter, right? And the reason, we'll get into why we think that Peter helped him write it, but before we do that, I think it's helpful to just have kind of a word on inspiration. Because if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to studying the Bible, we believe, we do believe that God inspired his word, right? Second Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We believe that God wrote the Bible. It, I mean, it says, we use the word inspired, which means like literally breathed out. We believe that God breathed out the word. So when we're holding God's word in our hand, God's word isn't just a shortcut to say Bible. We really mean that we have the words of God. Now, what's confusing is to think, how? How do we have God's word? Because we don't believe that God just put all of the writers of scripture into a trance and they just, their hand just started writing, you know, and then they woke up and were like, oh, wow, this must be God's word. We don't think that. We, that was, some people, that's called the dictation theory of inspiration, which we don't believe. We actually believe something, and this is super nerdy, that again, you don't have to write this down. We believe in what's called the verbal plenary of, uh, theory of inspiration, meaning the verbal, the words, plenary, all of them. We believe that all of them are inspired by God. But we believe that God uses normal, everyday means of gathering information so that he superintends this process where people are writing from their own vocabulary, their own histories, their own shared experiences. In fact, if you look at Luke, Luke says, oh, a lot of people have tried to write stuff about, so I thought it'd be a good idea to write a good account. So we think 
Luke, really, the Gospel of Luke is a research project that he interviewed a bunch of people. And I think that's what happened with Mark. We believe that what Mark did, I mean, obviously we see him with Peter, we see him with Paul. He has been with people who have heard everything that Jesus had to say. I mean, Jesus walked with Peter for three years. And so why do we think Peter? I'm glad you asked. Oh, one other passage as we talk about um, inspiration, I meant to say, is in 2 Peter chapter 1. This gives us a good picture of how God wrote it. It says that knowing this first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love that picture, right? That they're writing, but God is putting the guardrails up so that they are recording all of the information that he wants them to record so that at the end of the day, did Mark write this gospel? Yes. Is it God's word? Yes. It's both. And because we, we believe there's this dual authorship, like two streams coming together to form one river, that this is the way that God did it. That he used normal people in their natural um, histories, their ni- natural life experiences to record exactly what he wanted to say. And so with the internal evidence, I think that it's Peter, and I'll tell you why. Um, first off, there's a, there are several occasions where in the gospel, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John aside by themselves and teaches them. All right, now, if, if you're thinking, well, of course, that makes sense. It's just recording this information. Okay, but how did Mark know that? Well, probably Peter, James, or John told him. Look, in, uh, in chapter five, with the, he- the healing of Jairus' daughter, it says, he did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James' brother. And then we have the tra- at the transfiguration. The transfiguration in Mark 9 says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. We're gonna talk about that passage in a little bit because that's one of the coolest passages in all of the Bible. Jesus appears in all of his glory and brings back Moses and Elijah to talk with them. How do we know that that happened? Well, because somebody who was there shared that with the authors of scripture. Well, it's awesome, right? We also see with Andrew in Mark 13, and he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, just the four of them and Jesus, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of the things that are about to be accomplished. And then we see on the Mount of Olives, right, he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. But then also we see some really specific things that only Mark would have, I mean, sorry, only Peter would have known. Like we see, look, in, in Mark 8, Again, you don't want to write all this down. If you want the notes, well, they'll come out in email. In Mark 8, this, we're gonna, we'll talk about this also because as, as we're reading through this, the main character in Mark is Jesus, right? He's the hero. It's, the whole book is about the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's awesome because as you read through Mark, the disciples are like, they're the fumbling, bumbling side characters. And we're gonna, we'll talk about that because it's so good for me personally to see how ignorant the disciples were. I mean, God used these disciples to change the world and they look like goofballs, right? Uh, like especially right here in Mark 8, um, he's talking about how he's going to you know, die and come back. He's, he's going to give his life. And, Peter's, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Peter, who are you rebuking? No, Jesus. It says, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And look what he says to Peter. This is not, not encouraging, not something you'd want recorded. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He's he's calling him out, right? Look at this in uh, in little little tiny things, like in Mark 11. In Mark 11, uh, it's talking about how Jesus cursed a fig tree, and then later on, Peter sees the fig tree, and it's withered. And he said, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered, as if Jesus didn't know. (laughs) See that? 
But it's interesting. What's it say? Peter remembered it. Well, how would Mark know that Peter remembered that? Oh, Peter told him. And then further on, uh, and this is, this is one of the most sobering passages in Mark because we have, remember, the, the disciples are goofballs. The, the disciples do not have their lives together, which is so good for us to hear, right? And Peter, after following Jesus for three years, following him for three years, I mean, saying some amazing things about Jesus, when, it, at, when Jesus was handed over to be crucified, what do we see Jesus do? We see him denying. We, he, he denies Jesus. Jesus says, you're going to deny me. He says, no, everybody else will fall away, but not me. And then we see this. Look at Mark. I'm going to read some passages out of Mark 14. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. And in verse 66, as Peter, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls, servant girls of the high priest came and, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. And that's when he denies them. And further on, says, but again he denied it. The second time, and after, and after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And again, he denied again three times. And then look what it says in verse 72. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Isn't that fascinating? How do we know this? Peter shared this with Mark, which is also so encouraging because not only do we have these imperfect people who, who God chose to change the world, like not only are they imperfect, but they're, they've got this humility to where Peter, even in relaying this information to be shared by Mark, he tells them all of the mistakes he, could ever, ma- he ever made. Well, it's so humbling, right? And what's the point of this? The point of this, why is this helpful? This is helpful for us to realize, okay, this really did happen. Peter really did relay this information to Mark who recorded it for us. That's very important. You know, because uh, you, you can get too far, and Rob and I were talking about this this week. People, some people who, uh, who write commentaries have way too much time on their hands. And if you ever get into like really nerdy, um, the nerdier the commentary, the less helpful they are for your life, it seems. Because um, you'll read, you know, 60 pages talking about all of the reasons why maybe Mark didn't write it. And then at the end, it's like, oh, but probably it's just Mark. I mean, that's what tradition says. If we've got him in there. We know he's with Peter and Paul. It's like, just say that, right? But we're, what's so cool is that as we, for the next year, as we're studying this, we're getting to see an, somebody who followed Jesus. Like, we get to see this gospel written by Mark through the eyes of Peter. All right, so how do we approach this? Um, there's, with the, the Gospel of Mark is really fascinating because it is super fast-paced. Um, I'll challenge you guys, uh, read, through the go- read through the whole book. As we're getting ready to study it for the next year. Just go ahead and do some reps reading through all of it. I think it's really helpful, not just, uh, we're gonna mainly be preaching out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. Sometimes uh, our pastors will use the Christian Standard Bible. But I also think for your own sake, if you sit down and read this in the New Living Translation, you can read it in less than an hour, and it's so encouraging. And if you read it uh, at once, you get to see it's super duper fast paced. Like when you read through Matthew, Matthew is nearly twice as long and has so much of Jesus's teaching. With Mark, Mark is really, really fast paced. In fact, you, if you, especially if you read it in one of in like the ESV or the New American Standard. Uh, you'll see that he'll use the word immediately. Every time he starts a new sentence, and immediately this, and immediately that. So if you're reading it, it it seems like it's super fast-paced. It's it's the gospel for the ADD generation. It's, and this next, oh, and then, and then, and it's just boom, boom, boom. In fact, uh, if you want to be super nerdy, because I know you all do, um, this word for immediately is used 50 times in the New Testament, and 40 of them are in the book of Mark. 41? Oh, maybe 40 verses. Anyway, we'll th- we can arm wrestle later. Um, <laughs> Joseph says 41, and he's probably right. I would say I'm if, Joseph, thanks. Uh, 
So that's what I'm saying, super fast paced. And like if we go through, when you go through the letters, a lot of the letters will follow a specific outline where it's like he's making an argument by doing this, this, this. When you read through Mark, there's two different ways that you can outline the book of Mark. Both of them are gonna follow the same chapters, but you can either, again, this isn't super important because it really does just, it's just, Boom, 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 all the way. This is a gospel about Jesus, and then you get to the empty tomb. It's so fast the whole way. So if you want to look at it, you can look at it geographically or thematically. If you look at it geographically, you have uh, chapters 1 through 8 are Jesus and his ministry in Galilee, and then 9 and 10 are moving from Galilee to Jerusalem, and then 11 through 16 are Jesus and his ministry in Jerusalem. All right? Simple, right? One through eight, nine and 10, 11 through 16. Or if you were gonna look at it thematically, same thing. One through eight is the good news of Jesus and his proclamation of the kingdom. Or and then you look at nine and 10 is the good news of Jesus and his teaching on discipleship. And what's cool about nine and 10 is most of the teaching, it looks like it's for the disciples. He's teaching on discipleship to the disciples. And then the good news about Jesus is death and the empty tomb from 11 through 16. Right? Again, this is just helpful for us in the next year to see this framework as we're going through it. And then the one last thing of introductory stuff we need to talk about is the ending of the book of Mark. If you've, if you're, if you've read ahead in most modern translations, it goes to chapter 16, verse 8, and will say some of the older manuscripts stop here. And then you'll have um, nine uh, Nine through the rest of the chapter, it says some of the, uh, some other manuscripts have this. So I want to look at both of the endings and talk about, you know, the significance of both of them. And the the shorter ending is like this. The shorter ending is just um, Mark 16, 8, and it says, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. All right. Now, Is that a sufficient ending to the book of Mark? I think sure, absolutely. Especially remember, Mark is really fast-paced. It's boom, 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 boom. There's always action, always action, always action. And we get to the end and the tomb is empty and they're just overwhelmed by it. Great. And in fact, most people will say that this is probably because we have the the earliest manuscripts we have don't go any further than verse eight. And some of the second century church fathers will say that they didn't think that the longer ending was authentic, meaning they didn't think that Mark was the one who penned it. Now, let's look at the longer version and then we'll make some comments and then we'll move on to talk about more enjoyable things. Um, The longer ending is this. In Mark 16, 9, it goes on, it says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and, and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And after these things, he appeared to another in, to, in another form to two of them as they were walking um, into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe him. Mark 16, 14 says, afterward he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table and rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they, because, sorry, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt him. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And when they went out and preached, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now, is, did Mark originally write that? At the end of the day, we don't know. If it, w- it would make sense if he stopped at verse eight, fine with that. It, we don't have it in those later, the earliest manuscripts and maybe there was someone who had been copying this and felt like, oh, we need to have a word of encouragement at the end and wrote some more, like wrote notes that eventually got copied into what we have now. That could have happened. Now, but then what do we do with this text? Well, this text looks like it is a compilation of other gospels and acts. Right? There's, nothing, there's nothing unique in this passage that we don't see in other places except for the poison, right? We, for the drinking deadly poison and living, right? But we see 
Paul gets uh, bit by a deadly snake, shakes it off. We see them casting out demons, we see them healing, we see them preaching the gospel. It, it looks like, and we, even the two, the two disciples that he meets with and on the way, we see that in Luke 24, right? And maybe, maybe Mark did write it because it would make sense that Mark wrote this. Why? Because you have the disciples not believing, right? Because they were, they messed up all the time. They're very confused. So at the end of the day, I, we can't say with certainty whether or not this ending was, was, uh, was authentically written by Mark, but what we can say is that it's still true. It was still true, and it's still been attested to by other passages of Scripture. We don't have any doctrines that weigh just on this, and so it, whether or not it was originally inspired by, the, uh, by, by God, it still seems authentic. Does that make sense? It still seems like these are things that, that actually did happen. We have confirmation in Luke 24, Matthew uh, 28, and in different uh, passages in Acts. So it's probably still real, probably still authentic. Just like when we handled the woman who was caught in adultery, that might not have actually happened, but it might have, right? It, and we, in fact, we believe that God did all of those things anyway. So there are good reasons to believe that it's there or that it's not. Um, we'll leave that to your own study. But here, here's what I really want to dive into, the, looking at the disciples, because I think this is super important. We've already talked about it, um, because we have to, at the end of the day, we can have confidence that Mark was written by God, and that this is representing the authentic word of God to his people, and we can trust it. One of the reasons why I think this is so important is because we don't, we don't actually think about this. Most of the time, we don't ask really good questions um, about the text of Scripture. We just accept it and keep going, which is awesome, but it's good to think through. Why did God record that? Because I, I believe that God recorded everything that we have in Scripture. So the question is, when we look at the, when we look at the disciples, because we see the disciples acting in such crazy, ignorant ways, now, if Jesus, if, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not take place, then Christianity is not true. You guys understand that? Like, we, we wholeheartedly believe that, I mean, that's what, at 1 Corinthians 15, right? At, Paul says, Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he raised again in accordance with the scriptures. And if the resurrection didn't take place, we are of all people most to be pitied. If it didn't happen, then it's just, then Christianity, all of us have believed a lie. We've put our faith in some sort of weird conspiracy. All right, so what do we have to believe that it's not a conspiracy? And I think the ignorance of the disciples is such a good argument against it being a conspiracy. Think about it. I mean, if this was written, this was written in the lifetime of the, 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 like the founding church fathers, right? So at this time, when it was written, obviously, Peter was still alive, right? James was still the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. I mean, we have, like, they were really still alive. Why would you then manufacture a document to validate this conspiracy and slam all of the leaders? Look at, let's look, let's look through some of these. In Mark 4, when Jesus calms a storm. It says, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? <laughs> well, they're supposed to know, right? They're the ones who are preaching. Well, well because they didn't get it, right? What's fascinating is what, we're see, what we see with the, with the disciples is something that we need to learn from, is that the disciples were so entrenched in their theology that they didn't take Jesus at his word. What I mean by that is that the, mo, these disciples, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that he was the one who's going to set um, Israel free. And Israel was in captivity to Rome. And they wanted to have a Messiah who was going to come that was going to set them free from Rome. I get that, right? Most of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus as a Messiah, like the ones, the, the fun ones to read at Christmas, right? Like, um, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, right? His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. I mean, that's, those are the fun ones to read. But then when you read through Isaiah 53, you've got this suffering servant. Well, imagine if 10 to 1, the prophecies about your Messiah was that he's going to be ruler, reigning king, and 
and then the one was that he's going to be a suffering servant. Which one's going to get you more inspired? Ruling, reigning king. But they didn't get it. They weren't able to see Jesus who, they re- who he really was because their theology, their theology blinded them, right? Mark 6 following says, and he got in the boat with them. This is when Jesus walked on water, which is awesome. Uh, he got in the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. And it says, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts, but their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand about the loaves because he is in charge of everything. Jesus rules everything. You read through Mark, Jesus is in control, right? Wind and waves, he just says stop. The second time that he calms a storm, he doesn't even say anything, or at least nothing's recorded. He just steps in the boat. I mean, he was walking on the water. I don't know which is more miraculous. (laughs) Uh, You were walking on the water, and it was stormy, and then you stepped here, gone. I mean, and they don't know, right? Mark 8. When he fed the multitudes a second time. Remember, he'd, he fed 5,000 of their families. and says, and the disciples answered him, man, how can we feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Well, if you're reading through, you're like, wait, a couple of chapters ago, I mean, I just read he fed 5,000 people. Your automatic thinking is, oh, wait, a lot of people, there's no food, Jesus will feed them. But what, is, what do the disciples do? They're like, what are we going to do? We're going to do what I did the last time right? Um, even further, right? Um, when, when Peter rebuked Jesus, I mean, he pulls him aside, says, no, may it never be. Uh, and then Jesus rebukes him. And then a tra- the transfiguration, look at how, this is what's crazy. The Mount of Transfiguration, this is one of my top three, if I could go back in history and, and be present for this transfiguration, right? We see Jesus in all his glory, Moses and Elijah, your heroes from the Old Testament. They've been dead a long time. You see them there. And then look at what Peter says. I love Peter because he has no filter and he, yeah, well, we'll just read. And Peter said to Jesus, the dumbest thing you could ever say. Again, remember, okay, remember this was written during the lifetime of the early church leaders, okay? And it was written to give an accurate account of what Jesus said and did. Keep that in mind. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good we are here. I know. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. You know, picture the tabernacle. There was only one of those. It says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I love it. And then, it gets worse, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they saw, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Okay, you know, when Jesus rebuked Peter in front of the disciples, that was bad. But when God speaks from heaven and rebukes you, worse And then look at this. It doesn't, they, it doesn't get better for the disciples. They don't get painted in a better light. And when they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And we know the end of the story. We know what that means. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. Isn't that fascinating? Well, they didn't get it. Again, their theology blinded them. At the same thing, when Jesus predicted his death, says so they went out from there, and passed, you read through Mark, and you're so confused. You're not confused at what Jesus says, you're confused at how dumb the disciples are. Because he says several times, he predicts his death several times. At Mark 9, 30, they went out from there and passed through Galilee, and he, did, uh, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered in the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And look at verse 32. But they did not understand these things and they were afraid to ask. And this is not the way that you picture people who are the leaders of this movement. The last one I'll look at is in Mark 9 because you see over and over, they're always, when you look at the disciples, they're arguing about stupid stuff. You know, hey, we saw these people out here. Uh, they, they weren't from us. Should we call down fire from heaven? And Jesus like, no, nope. They're, they're using my name. That's, they're okay. And then it's like, oh, they're, what are you guys doing? Well, we're arguing about who's going to be better. 
We want to know, can I sit on your right side in the kingdom and him on your left? Look, Mark 39:33. when they came to Capernaum and he was, uh, he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now remember, these are the people who had already seen Jesus read people's minds, right? But they kept silent because on the way they'd argued about which, <laughs> they'd argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And then to, to help explain his point, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Right, we see that, that he is saying, okay, you're, you think it's all about being the best, but I'm saying, you know, just receive this child. On another occasion, he uses a child to talk about the type of faith that they're supposed to have. Again, we've already seen the denial of Peter. We see everyone deserts him, everyone. When Jesus, when Jesus is arrested, everyone deserts him. Mark 15, 40, uh, 14, 50, this is where it looks like maybe Mark kind of painted himself into the picture. It says, and they all left him and fled. And there's a story about the one guy who's got this linen outfit, linen-like well, I don't know what they, we would call them like a toga, but that's what they wore all the time. And it gets grabbed because someone tries to grab him and he, yank, he gets out and runs away in his underwear, which is just a crazy story. Uh, why would you include that and how would you know that happened? I think it was Mark just because I think it's fun. Um, but that's, but what, what is that doing? If that's true, then that's Mark showing him, showing himself as one of the people that also abandoned Jesus. And then don't forget this, because remember, James wasn't one of the disciples. James was Jesus' brother who rejected him during his lifetime. But when this was written, James would have been a leader in the church. And now if there's a conspiracy, again, would you have the leader of the Jerusalem church? Like, that's the main, the main church. Would you predict it? Would you, would you show him in a, in a bad light or a good light? Obviously, you'd want to encourage people to follow him. But look, what do we see? In Mark 3, verse 21, it says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. You're not going to say, oh, James, you know, he's our leader. We want to follow him. But he thought he didn't believe in Jesus. During his lifetime, he didn't believe. In fact, uh, further on in, in uh, chapter 3, it says, and his mother and brothers came to him. And standing outside, they asked him and they called him. They wanted him to stop. They thought he was crazy. And it says, a crowd was sitting around him and they asked him, your mother and brothers are outside ask, uh, seeking you. But he answered, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And then the last thing we'll look at, which would, wouldn't make sense if this were a conspiracy, is look at the women. Like remember, this is a, a period of time where women weren't allowed to give a testimony in court of law, either in Greek or Roman circles, right? And the ones who didn't abandon him were the women. In, in uh, Mark 15, it says, and there are also women looking at him from a distance, among whom was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and, and of Joseph and Salome. And he was in Galilee. They followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem, right? So, the picture that we're seeing or is Jesus as the hero. He's, he's the center of the story. The disciples, they didn't get it until after he rose from the dead, which again points to something crazy. It points to the resurrection of Jesus affirming everything that Jesus said so that afterwards the disciples would follow him because we know the end of the story. We know that all of these disciples, they became, they, they changed from being the scaredy cats who didn't understand what Jesus was saying, who all deserted him, to changing the world. And we get to, we're living in that history now, right? These are our heroes in the faith. And then, so, so, but what about the picture of Jesus that we see in the gospel of Mark? What do we see about Jesus? Because there, there's so many people who are critics of Christianity and they will say, oh yeah, Jesus, I don't believe he's God, I just believe that he is, what, what do they say? Prophet, good teacher, right? That's, and this is the most common, common answer, because here's, here's the truth of the matter, is everybody has to do something with Jesus. You gotta do something with him. And the easiest thing to do is you say, well, he's, oh, he's just a good teacher, 
He taught a, ro- a lot of really good things. And you know what? He did. But what's fascinating is that the people who say that Jesus was just a good moral teacher, do you know where they get the good moral teaching from? Uh-huh, the Bible. So how can we accept the good teaching of Jesus from the Bible but nothing else? I want to read, and what's crazy is that when you, when you study through these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John has the highest Christology. Like, oh, I mean, every sentence is like, oh, he's God. He's saying, I am. He's talking about being with God in heaven before he came here. But with Mark, people say, oh, it doesn't have a very high Christology. Well, that's not true. It's just not. Um, we're going to look through that. But what I want to, in, in light of that, I want to read a, a, a two paragraphs from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. In Mere, C.S. Lewis, you know, we love him because he wrote the movies about Narnia. He also wrote other things that are really good. He says this, this is in Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would never be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God, right? So I want us to think through this. As we read through the way that Mark depicts Jesus, it is so clear. Mark is saying on every page, Jesus is God. He has not left the, op- the option open for us to say he was just a good moral teacher. And then let's take a step even further back. That it w- uh, Lewis says, you know, he was either liar, lunatic, and Lord. But then what about all the people who followed him? Everyone who has followed Jesus, who has given their lives for the truth of what they believe that Christianity is, they themselves have to either be justified because it's true, or they're deceived or they're dumb I mean think about that think about the 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 power that Christianity has had in the world to transform cultures we'd have to say that too was a fraud but what is how does Mark how does Mark look at him I want to look at three uh, three different titles that Mark uses to talk about Jesus you know first off he says uh, he says he's telling the gospel right the gospel that's just, a, that's our way of translating the good news, right? This is the good news of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, right? So let's look at the word Christ. Christ is a Greek word, um, which is a translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah, right? He's, on, on the, in the first, his first paragraph, the first sentence, he, said, he calls Jesus the Christ. It's not a last name, it's a title, this is Jesus as the Messiah. Look at, I want to look at three different, uh, three different times where we see Mark talk about Jesus as the Messiah. First, obviously, Mark 1.1, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But then we see Peter say it in, uh, in Mark 8. In Mark 8.27, and when Jesus, uh, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about it. Isn't that interesting? Who, who, and again, remember, of course you can say he's the Messiah. They just had a different understanding of what the Messiah was going to do. But they believed that he was the Messiah, who's the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament had said. He's the one coming to save us. And then Jesus says it. In Mark 14, and this is so powerful, this is when he's on trial. It's the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is, what is it that men are testifying against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, 
are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. Jesus never claimed to be God. I mean, this is the I am, right? This is the covenant name uh, in the Old Testament that he used to describe himself, I am. And he says, you will see the son of man, which we'll talk about in a second, coming on clouds with glory. Okay, even if we don't get it, we know they got it. Because what, is, what happens? And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What blasphemy? He claimed to be God. He claimed to be Yahweh. He claimed to be the Messiah. This is not just some sort of manufactured legend that we're making up. That's what Jesus said. And then we see that he calls him the son of God. Son of God, again, Mark 1, the, the, the beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But then we also see, if you read through Mark, you know who else calls Jesus Son of God? Demons. Mark 3.11, and whenever an unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the Son of God. And then finally, in, in Mark 15, we see a Roman centurion recognizing it. It says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And when the and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, which I can't wait till we get to this passage. It's gonna be awesome. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, this is a Roman centurion. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Right, we see it, right? Jesus, the centurion, Mark saying it, and finally the Son of Man. Son of Man, uh, for us to understand Son of Man, you all have to do your homework uh, this, uh, this week is to read Daniel 7. You need to read Daniel 7 for your homework this week because what we see that when we say Son of Man, for most of us we just think, oh, Son of a man, a human. Nope, when the Bible uses Son of Man, this is reserved for, I mean, this is the King of Kings, this is the ruling, reigning God. This, he is the son of man. And, and, and to let you understand the way that Paul uses it, I'm just gonna, I'm Paul, the way that Mark uses it, I'm gonna read through what the son of man does in the gospel of Mark. The son of man, we see that this is the, the most common way for, that Jesus refers to himself. He, he talks about how the son of man has the authority to forgive sins. Remember that? He said, I could just heal him, but so that you would know that the son of man has authority to, heal, to forgive sins, and he heals him. The son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The son of man is gonna suffer and rise from the dead. The son of man is gonna come in glory. That's what we see Daniel 7. The son of man came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The son of man is going to be betrayed. The son of man will be seated at the right hand of the Father, coming with the clouds from heaven. These are all claims. These are all Jesus claiming to be God. When he calls himself the son of man, he says what the son of man does, forgiving sins, these are things that only God can do. And again, like we said, Jesus, uh, Mark spends most of his time talking not about Jesus' teaching, but his, but his actions. Look at, what he, look at what Jesus does. Jesus casts out demons. He even makes the point, says, oh, if, you, if someone's gonna cast out a demon, they need to be way stronger than that demon. I mean, he can, he can throw out a thousand at a time, no big deal. He casts out demons, he heals the sick, he forgives sins, which is what only God can do. He commands the physical creation and it obeys him. He fed 5,000 of their families, he fed 4,000. He walks on water and he rises from the dead. What we're seeing is not a picture of a great moral teacher. What Mark is doing is Mark is showing us the gospel of Jesus who is the Messiah, who is the Son of God, God himself. Right? This is huge. As we're reading through this, and you know, over the next year, we're gonna get to read through the life and ministry of Jesus as recorded by Mark through the eyes of Peter. And we're gonna see a picture of Jesus as God, as the one who is the creator and the sustainer of the world, who as God became a human being and as a perfect human being, lived a life that was perfect, who didn't sin. And because he didn't sin, he was able to provide the perfect sacrifice for our sins, which he did. He called his shot and he did it. He said over and over, you know what's gonna happen? I'm gonna be betrayed. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be handed over to sinful men. I'm gonna die and I'm gonna rise again. And man, Mark couldn't make this more clear. What happened when the gospel was accomplished? The temple, the veil that kept mankind from the holiness of God was ripped from top to bottom. And what we have is a gospel that's accomplished. He said it. 
Mark 1, 1, what's this? This is the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and we get to the end and it's accomplished. That's awesome. And so the, the question is, what, how are you gonna respond to this? Everyone, uh, for the next year, every week, we're gonna have a picture of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah who's the Son of God. And every week, we're gonna have to respond. And you, even to look at Jesus' own words, he says, man, the gospel is worth everything. He says, nobody who gives up anything here is not gonna be re- rewarded by my Father in heaven. It's it. I mean, if it's, if it's not true, it's worth nothing. We've all believed a lie. Sorry. But if it is true, it's worth everything. It's worth every second of every day. I mean, how are we gonna respond to that? And what's so, again, it's so good. You can't read the Gospel of Mark without realizing that God uses just really dumb, failing people. How encouraging is that? And if, if, if for me, if I'm, gonna, if I'm gonna relate with anybody in the book of Mark, I'm the guy at the end of Mark chapter nine who's trying to get, he's trying to get God to heal his son. And he says, man, it's impossible. <laughs> All you have to do is believe. And he, he responds and says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because whether or not you have put your faith and trust in Jesus or, if, I mean, if, if you're not a believer, the only way is to believe. And Jesus says, repent and believe in me. And if you are a Christian, we still walk the road of repentance. We still walk the road of belief. Because at the end of the day, when we're choosing things apart from following Christ, we're not believing that he has the best thing for us. And for most of, most of you in this room are Christians who are trying like the disciples to, in your failings, fall closer to Jesus. And what do we need? We need, we need God to help our unbelief. And do I believe that, I mean, I just said it, right, that the gospel is worth everything? Yes, I believe that. But do I live that way? No. What do I need? I need God to help my unbelief, right? So for every one of us, we have to do something with Jesus. And we have to do something with Jesus every day. Are we going to live lives, the way that the epistles will say this is, are we going to live lives worthy of the gospel? If so, what do we need? We need Jesus to help our unbelief. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to worship God uh, through song, by singing these things to him and about him. So let's join. Father, we love you. And we're so thankful for this amazing gospel that you've given to us. Thank you that you chose to use ignorant, failing followers to change this world because of the belief and the faith that you gave them to trust you. And I pray that you'll be with uh, this church as we go through the study of Mark, that we'll be overwhelmed by your goodness, by your, by your glory, and that we will daily be challenged to put our faith and our trust in you and to live that faith out. For those who are here who are not your, not your sons or daughters, who've never genuinely repented of their sins, put their faith in you, I pray that you'll draw them to yourself. For those of us who are your children, I pray that you will daily give us the faith to follow you, to choose you, over everything else, knowing that we will not be disappointed. We love you and praise you. We worship you in Jesus' name, amen.